Indemnity Costs Revisited, Clear, Simple, The Brave New World. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, Peter Hurst here. Today's speaker is Paul Darling, OBEQC. Paul has established a formidable reputation as an oral advocate who has fought commercial and construction trials and appeals all over the world as a junior and then in silk. He has been brought in to the end of cases to argue costs and has done several cases on the effect of Part 36. Adaptability and focus have contributed to Paul's reputation as a game changer brought in to direct some of the construction and commercial world's most difficult cases. He was at Keating Chambers until 2017 and then joined 39 Essex Chambers. He has a special interest in remote trials. Some years ago, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators held a demonstration of a video hearing showing the cross-examination of a witness in the USA from the UK. During the examination, Paul started uh, his questions, and after a short time, the witness who was in Washington said, I'm feeling really threatened. Paul looked rather surprised and said, I haven't started yet. He's about to start now, and his topic is indemnity costs revisited a brave new world. My name is Paul Darling. I'm a barrister at 39 Essex, and I am going to be talking to you about indemnity costs after a, I think, landmark decision of the Court of Appeal in a case called Legendvan. Reference for those of you that would like it is 2020 EWCA Civil 114. And I'm going to divide my talk into five sections. First of all, I'm going to address the question of why indemnity costs orders matter. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the court's overall approach. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about the test in general terms for the award of indemnity costs. And fourthly, I'm going to talk about the the, the relevance to the award of indemnity costs of the strength of the case, uh, which was particularly focused on in Levenjohn. And then finally, I'm going to have a word about the magic subject of of part 36 offers. Um, I'm going to, I'll start if I may, with why it matters, whether you get an order for indemnity costs or an order for standard costs. Um, It can matter now a very great deal for three reasons. The first is the one we all know historically, which is it reverses the burden of proof uh, in terms of the reasonableness of the costs uh, and requires the, um, the, the burden to be reversed. The second point is that it releases the uh, consideration of the award of indemnity costs from the shackles of the cost budget. So you're not going to be bound by the cost budget in the same way. Thirdly, it, it removes the requirement for uh, re- for review of the costs by way of re- reference to proportionality. I- each of those is very important. doesn't mean, as we all know, that you simply are thereby awarded the costs that you have in fact incurred on a solicitor and own client basis, 
But nevertheless, an award of indemnity costs can be very, very significant indeed. Uh, of course, um, that is less so when one is dealing with summary assessments. Um, judges I know, and of the cases that I've done, judges have elided the test of the assessment and, uh, as it were, regarded them all as part and parcel of the big factor. But when you've had a uh, set of proceedings and a trial and a hearing uh, and a judgment, then the award of indemnity costs can be uh, very significant by reference to standard. In the, the Leverjohn case, there were several hundred thousand pounds between the cost budget and the costs actually incurred. Lord Justice Coulson made it clear that that didn't follow, that it would be automatically awarded, um, and the difference will, of course, depend on the facts. But getting an award of indemnity costs really does, really can matter. It's worth remembering also that, that these arguments about costs at the end of hearings can actually be, uh, in economic terms, as important uh, as uh, of the same degree of importance as many of the underlying issues in the case. And it's interesting how you'll fight a you know, hearing for three weeks and then have an hour on costs. The reality is that these questions are very, very important. Um, so my second of my five topics is to talk about the court's approach to the award of indemnity costs. And I'm going to talk both uh, about the approach of the, of the first instance court and the procedure for appeals. Both of those seem to me to be linked because ultimately, uh, I'm going to suggest to you that the award of indemnity costs is very much a matter of judicial impression. And the more experienced the judge, the more likely they are to decide that as a question of impression. Nevertheless, as with all of these things, the tests are set out both in the rules and then in the cases. Um, the key here is, in my view, and the key thing to remember when considering the award of indemnity costs is that the courts approve the use of words. There are some words that decide the test that are acceptable and some that are not. Uh, and the court takes a particularly um, enthusiastic view about expressing the test in words that it say are acceptable and words that it say are not acceptable. Um, some words are permitted and some are not. In the context of this, there's also other cases that, are, that disparage the citing of authority when you're trying to identify what the test is for the award of indemnity costs. The line the, co the courts are taking increasingly is um, the authorities have set out the test in clear and simple terms and you don't get much, if any, help from the application of the test in individual cases. Now, of course, that's right because the test is the test and each case is very fact-specific. But I, I do myself think that the approach that says you shouldn't cite authority is a bit harsh for two reasons. One is because the test for indemnity costs is one that is, in fact, in the case law rather than one that is in the statute, or sorry, in the, in the, in the rules. Um, uh, and secondly, when you are trying to apply these words, which actually, when we come to look at some of them, you'll see are, um, suggest rather, rather a low hurdle um, for the award of indemnity costs, uh, actually seeing how they are in fact applied in real life uh, very much helps. And also, I think, helps judges um, when they are making their decisions uh, as to how um, indemnity costs are to be awarded. But there is a distinct reluctance in the um, uh, courts to, uh, for, their, for people to cite authority 
I understand it, but I, I don't think you can be criticised for taking along the leading cases. Um, and if there's one that's particularly apposite to the situation you've got, um, the temptation to slip it in so as to uh, inform the debate is, I think, too strong. Um, so when we look at it in a few, few moments, I'll tell you which words they approve and which words they don't approve. Um, Court of Appeal ha- considered and allowed the appeal uh, in, in Leverjohn. It did so having found a way to review the exercise of the judge's discretion. Now, court, appellate courts are traditionally very wary of considering and allowing appeals on costs, particularly discretionary matters generally, but costs particularly because of the uh, strong advantage enjoyed by the judge who has tried the case at first instance. But I hope the Court of Appeal will forgive me if I say that there is a certain amount of um, linguistics about this. One knows one goes to the Court of Appeal and if they're against you, they say, for goodness sake, for goodness sake, this is discretion. And if they don't like the judge's judgment and, you say, and you're trying to uphold it, and you say, but it's discretion, their immediate answer is to say, oh yes, but we can review discretion if we, if we want to, um, provided we can bring it within the rules. So I think discretion is one of the, the, is one of the little weapons the Court of Appeal uses. Uh, interestingly, in um, the case that we've been talking about, um, the way in which they um, reviewed the decision of the first instance recorder, a very experienced recorder, um, was to uh, say that he had not given sufficient weight to various matters uh, and that the, that it de- failed to deal effectively with one point which he'd identified, but then not identified how it played out into the ultimate outcome. So what one has is um, ordinary principles of reviewing discretion apply to costs appeals, um, but I would say two important things about it. One is, I do think it's right that experienced judges of great seniority A, understand when they should award and shouldn't award indemnity costs, um, and and B, are not particularly likely to be reviewed by the Court of Appeal. But secondly, the Court of Appeal is um, a body that is willing, uh, in the appropriate case, particularly where it wants to to reset the principles uh, or to um, clarify them or to restate them in a way that makes them easier to use, is willing to um, go about considering these things in a way that means appeals can be considered in circumstances that might, to the purest, uh, appear unlikely. So, we we come on to the third of my topics, what is the general test? Um, And there are a number of words that are um, used by the courts to describe the circumstances. Uh, And I'll give you three that come out of the authorities. First, is it out of the norm? Second, Is it unreasonable to a high degree so as to justify indemnity costs? Seven, something outside the normal and reasonable conduct of proceedings. Now, those are phrases that one gets in the authorities. I confess that I have difficulty with the use out of the norm because it depends how big and wide the norm is. But, of course, the court gets round that by putting what some might say is a circular um, requirement in... uh, out of a norm, so as to, unreasonable, so uh, unreasonable, so as to justify an award of indemnity costs. Some might say that that begs the question, but that, of course, goes back to my point of the understanding of um, um, 
experienced judges as to the circumstances in which uh, they can and should award indemnity costs. Um, Unreasonable to a high degree so as to justify indemnity costs is, I think, a good way of putting it um, if you are trying to avoid an award. Um, Whereas if you're trying to get one, you're going to focus, aren't you, on the, the, the superficially easier words of something outside the normal and reasonable conduct of the proceedings. Because on that basis, you would be able, once there is any abnormality or unreasonableness, to jump towards your award for indemnity costs. But in, in the uh, Le- Legend Vaughan case, which I'll come to in a moment in a little bit more detail, in the Legend Vaughan case, there were various bits of behaviour by the parties that Mr Recorder Bowdry, in the first instance, described as not coming outside of that, that test, and which he said on their own wouldn't justify an award of indemnity costs, uh, and Lord Justice Coulson agreed with him. So it's clear that it has to be something that is um, something that is um, gen- that, that is and about and only fell into the trap that I'm going to tell you about in a second by using a word that the courts have refu- refused to adopt, um, and it does highlight the difficulty of getting the test right. Before I go on to that impermissible naughty word, um, it, the court also in Court of Appeal in, in, in Legend of Arm made it clear that aggregating various factors, each of them on their own not sufficient to justify an award, but the combination of them, the aggregation of them, would be capable of doing so. So you add that to the test. Now, the word I was about to use, which the, where, the, where um, and it's quite interesting to me that I slipped into it nearly by accident, which where the courts have said that this is not the right test, is it doesn't have to be exceptional. People have said that, you know, in order to get an award of indemnity costs, the behaviour needs to have been exceptional. And in, uh, the authorities are quite clear that that is a bad word and that if you, are, if you apply that test, uh, you're applying too, too high a test. You also need to remember that the courts have been clear that there is no need for dishonesty or moral turpitude. Of course, if you have an exceptional case or a case with dishonesty and moral turpitude, then, then you may well get indemnity costs much more easily because, you know, courts do not like, courts do not like, um, um, they're not very keen on dishonesty or moral turpitude. Uh, it's one of the things about courts. So the reality is that you get those general tests that, that you um, need to apply to the facts. From my point of view, I, I would emphasise that as one sets out these words and tests, being careful to identify those words which are not permitted, um, and you can see how easily it is to slip into that, that, that focusing on the individual tests that are put forward um, by the authorities is the way to A, argue your case and be defended in the Court of Appeal. The fourth case, the fourth point that I was going to talk about was the relevance um, of the strength of the case to indemnity costs. Uh, And here you also get words that are acceptable for the test and words that are unacceptable for the test. Um, What happened in in Legendvan was that many of you will know the underlying facts, which were a circumstance where a... um, relationship between two sets of friends or a friend and uh, uh, two, two house owners for the for the uh, architectural services for a garden. The friend provided architectural services for free. There was a, It was said that there was therefore no duty of care. Mr. Recorder Nissen, 
uh, held that there was a duty of care. He was upheld by the Court of Appeal, but the Court of Appeal made it clear the duty of care only extended to things that the friendly, free, friendly and unpaid architect in fact did, uh, that there was no obligation on the architect to perform the services. All he had to do was to ensure that uh, any performance was... Uh, um, any performance that was in fact rendered was done with reasonable skill and care. Uh, and the effect of that ruling was ultimately, uh, and I'm going to fall into the trap of uh, using bad words, doom um, the claim to fail at trial when it was advanced uh, at trial in front of Mr Recorder Bowdry. Uh, and the case, Mr Recorder Bowdry's judgment, made it abundantly, case, abundantly clear that the um, claim had failed pretty clearly. Uh, and and that, that, that there was, he took a strong view as to the merits of the case. And again, using all of these labels is going to be highlighted by the, the um, highlight the difficulty that the test involves. But certainly, so the the um, defendants applied for uh, indemnity costs, and um, Mr. Recorder Bowdry did not award them. Uh, he considered that there needed to have been a trial so as to. Um, decide the merit of the case. Um, the Court of Appeal was quite clear that the test was, uh, should the case have been seen by a reasonable claimant as so speculative and weak that it should not be pursued? And the Court of Appeal took the view that the case should have been seen by the claimant as so speculative and weak that it should not have been pursued, and therefore said that Mr Recorder Bowdry should have awarded indemnity costs. There was, in the authorities, in, in the judgment, I beg your pardon, there was a um, big discussion about what the test should be. Counsel for um, um, the claimant sought to argue, uh, and sought to persuade the court after the hearing, that the um, test was, uh, the test should be seen as, was it in hindsight hopeless? Court of Appeal said, no, that's on the, the list of bad words, um, and imposes a, a heavier test. Uh, it's not. Sim it's simply should the case have been seen by a reasonable claimant as so speculative and weak that it should not be pursued. My own view is, with no discourtesy to Mr. Recorder Bowdry, is that the Court of Appeal is completely right. That is uh, a sensible test, capable of application um, by first instance judges who have seen the trial um, and speculative and weak it means that you're not going to get caught with cases that just are uh, um, just fail because they haven't quite got there. Speculative and weak are words that uh, speculative and weak are strong words. Uh, and if a case is speculative and weak, why on earth should the party faced with it be required to bear their own irrecoverable costs? Why should, if someone has chosen? Have it to mount a speculative and weak claim. Should those costs not? Uh, should there be no irrecoverable costs? Uh, and the party who's on the wrong end of it, why should they be prejudiced by that sort of conduct? Now, I, I think the law is now pretty clear in that regard uh, as to how as to how as to what the test is, um, and it's clear that hopeless in hindsight is not the right test, um, and that's a stronger test. I would say, than the one the Court of Appeal has so clearly articulated. Um, in um, the fifth of the points I want to talk about is the relevance of the 
uh, a Part 36 offer, um, where the defendant, in, in this case, uh, the um, claimants made uh, part um, the there were Part 36 offers, um, and um, what the court said was that. Uh, contrary to some ambitious submissions made at first instance, um, that there is no presumption uh, in favour of a uh, defendant who has done better than their Part 36 offer, that they then get their indemnity, they then get an award of indemnity costs from then on. It isn't the mirror of the claimant's Part 36 offer. Uh, leading counsel for uh, suggested, leading counsel for the Defend, leading counsel for the defendant suggested at the hearing that this was a, um, I can't remember the words he used, egregious failure by the Rules Committee to implement the, uh, the, the rules that were required. That didn't find favour with the court. It, it, it said that the rule was that there was no presumption that they get indemnity costs. But nevertheless, it was um, an important factor in the exercise of the court's discretion. And indeed, one of the criticisms that they made of the judge below's judgment was that he did not feed in the Part 36 offer and the fact that uh, the defendant had beaten it uh, into his consideration of indemnity costs. And the Court of Appeal set the test quite clearly there as to what, as to how the court should approach it. It put it in words much like the norm test, which superficially seemed quite easy to apply. Was there a point when the reasonable claimant would have concluded that the offer represented a better outcome than the likely outcome at trial. So again, it gives the court the it gives the court the the tools with which to appraise all the different elements of conduct, um, and can then make its discretionary decision in the light of all of the factors. Uh, the part thirty six offer defendant's part thirty six offer that wasn't beaten being an important part of the discretion. Can I then, having done those points, just take a couple of moments to reflect on where we are on indemnity costs? And I think that there are... Um, my, my own view is that um, the, the, the tests have become almost set in stone and clear, and that people applying for them, resisting them, and awarding them need to use those tests without deviation. As I've been doing this podcast, the temptation to slightly reformulate or to use different words that you think a paraphrase comes out, that has to be resisted. Secondly, I do think that um, there is a, the mo- we're in a phase when, the, when indemnity costs are very much in vogue and I think the Court of Appeal is quite likely to be interested in uh, people that are cases where there have or have not been awards of indemnity costs. That'll settle down. But for the next couple of years, I do think that indemnity costs have a, in my view, slightly better chance of getting to the Court of Appeal than otherwise they might. But thirdly, and most importantly, my sense, looking at this from a policy point of view, is that the courts are going to be more willing to award indemnity costs than they have been in the past. And I think that is um, essentially because this is the other side of the coin of cost budgeting. I think that part of the control that has been taken 
and we can debate this in other podcasts, a fascinating subject, as to the effect of the Jackson reforms, the effect of cost budgeting, the way it works. And in other series in this podcast are going to be looking at those topics. But I think that there is a recognition that if you are going to put normal litigation into the straitjacket of cost budgeting, that that makes it all the more important uh, and legitimate when something comes out of the straitjacket of cost budgeting to reflect in it uh, the indemnity costs order. Uh, I also suspect that, fourthly and finally, there's going to be a new little world in working out the assessment of costs on an indemnity basis. We know that the cost budget is blown by it, um, but where the dividing line is between um, indemnity and standard, between stat, between indemnity and own client, I think there's going to be quite a lot of uh, development there because I suspect that indemnity costs are going to be a more used medium. And again, that will have to work through. Interesting how we see all of this ebbing and flowing. Reform is very much a thing that moves things forward, but then brings with it other ramifications that then need to be picked up. Um, if you're going to apply for indemnity costs, wish you the best of luck. Don't make the mistake of citing any authority. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.